Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, our guest is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Brendan to the show. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Bill. How are you going? Very well. Uh, Brendan, you've been on the show before in uh, late 2019, uh, so I'm glad to have you back and hope we can hear some more about Gamblers Anonymous over the last couple of years. Before we do that, what if we start off by giving us a brief recap of how you started gambling, where that took you, and how you ended up in Gamblers Anonymous? Yeah, um, well, firstly, thanks a lot for having me on again. So I started gambling the first time I can actually pinpoint now. Um, the moment um, was when I was 17, one of my best mate's 18th birthdays. We ended up at, at the big place in the city. I had a fake ID from a family member who I looked very similar to. I mean, instead of enjoying the birthday party and the and the fun, I was drawn to the lights and the the activity that was going on downstairs, ventured downstairs with everybody as we did and, you know, everybody seemed to just have a bit of fun, spend a bit of money. But to me, it was just the, the thrill and the excitement was like something that I'd never experienced before and it was something that, you know, I, I craved even though I was only 17 and had to give the licence back. I just, I craved it more from then on. Yeah. So what was that feeling like, you know, that, that what was that emotion like for you? I think now, like having you know some time up and being able to like to really think about it and 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 reflect, it was it was almost like being a kid and going to say the Royal Melbourne Show and being given a note or given some money to go and and use to to have some fun as a child. That excitement that you feel, that adrenaline rush, you know, the endorphins running through you, that you know, like chills and tingles almost per se. It's very hard to describe you know, using words because, you know, you tell somebody you had chills and tingles the first time you gambled, they probably think you're a bit of a nutcase. But, you know, um, that's sort of the best way that I can describe it now. And it was like an instantaneous, like, like a homecoming almost, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a roundabout's way. So going back to the party then, were you close to your friend? Yeah, I mean, I, we, we, I, stayed, I stayed with them, you know, for majority of the – of the evening, but as you know, the night goes on and people start to separate, you know, sort of, you know, do their own thing, you know, find some ladies, you know, those kind of things. Well, I sort of just sort of stayed with the gambling, you know, and got as much in as I could at that time because I knew that, you know, that was my one chance until my 18th birthday, which would have been, you know, four months later. But I did have one more opportunity before my birthday when we went on our end of school trip and I also borrowed that identification. And spent, you know, a good portion of, you know, my end of year trip sitting at, you know, venues and machines doing the same thing. So started well before my 18th birthday. Um. So what about your um your friends? Did any was anybody else interested in pokers? Oh, uh, not to the level that I mean I was. It was all a bit of a novelty, I guess, to everybody. You know, we went out. We were young. We didn't. None of us really had any money, if you know, much at all. And it just became you know, something to meet up and catch up and do. But I would constantly be the last person there or the last one to get, you know, come on, let's go. Like we're going out now or, you know, and then you'd go and I'd be the one without the, without the money because it was all, it was all gone. Yeah, it's an, the unfortunate downside of gambling, isn't it? Yes, it's definitely the one, the, the, the most the most inconvenient one when you're a compulsive gambler is to run out of money constantly. Yeah. So a lot of people have, a win that sort of cements them into the gambling habit. So what was it about it that sort of got you hooked? 
I don't think I I don't think I can recall. I mean, I can recall, you know, the the larger wins that I that I had, you know, over a span of a decade and a half. But there wasn't like it wasn't like I walked in the first time I put some money in and I had this big ding 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 win and I was hooked, you know, from the start, which is a lot of the stories that you hear. I think for me it was it was an addiction that was always in me per se, and it came out in the form of the lights, the music, the adrenaline rush of almost getting something, you know, I mean, my 98% of my gambling was on poking machines. So it was the thrill of, you know, pushing the button or the anticipation. Yeah. Just that, that, that splits and, and how quick it was, you know, like how quick you got that same sort of, you know, if it finished and you didn't get something, you could just press it again and it would happen again. I um, mean, you know, like I was never into, you know, horse racing or any of those sports betting and that, that was never what, you know, anything that I had to wait for just didn't seem to resonate with me. Yeah. So how did it progress for you once you got a bit of money and a bit of freedom? Licence, freedom, a job, um, and the ability to just do what you want without having too much justification or reasoning to your parents just created more opportunity. And more opportunity meant more gambling and more gambling meant more lies, more deceit, more dishonesty, more, you know, not working when I should have been working, more, oh, yeah, mum, I'm going to a friend's house. Or really, I was just going to the pub on my own. You know, I remember on my birthday, on my 18th birthday, I got my licence in the morning. I went out for lunch in Brighton, had a family, you know, cake and coffee in the afternoon and then had dinner just, you know, just with my mum, my dad and my sister um, and then from there, it was like, I'm going to see my girlfriend. I went straight to the local venue and, and gambled until, you know, two o'clock on Christmas morning. You know, like it was just, it was just a, a progression that went very fast as soon as I had some form of disposable income. So did your parents know? Not early on. I don't think really, you know, many people except for a couple of, you know, associates or friends, but I mean, they were friends at the time, you know, you should realize they were associates and then they ended up just being people that, you know, brushed by in your life. And they knew. Um, and then it wasn't until probably I hit well, maybe 18 months, you know, or not yeah, 18 months into gambling when I like lost a job, you know, was, um, was got in trouble with the law for stealing um, from where I was working and had to pay back a large sum of money to um, a then employer and I didn't have the means to get it, that I had to sort of come clean to my parents who said that they knew something was going on, but I didn't, you know, no, no one ever really understands the extent of what you're doing until, you know, you are caught or you are busted, as, as we say. Yeah. So when, when do you think that lying, deception, cheating started in your life? How early? Oh, very early, like early adolescent, you know, like, as, you know, as much as, you know, um, taking money from mum's purse when I was going to the the shops as a young teenager or uh, lying about where I got something, whether it was stolen or whether it was with the money that I'd stolen and hiding it. Like there was, there was always an element of um, deception and lying in what I was doing because it just, it felt, you know, to portray something that I wasn't was easier than being what I really, you know, who I really was. Yeah. And how did it make you feel? Time. I, you, you don't really, um, I think it's another one of those things that's really hard to explain to certain people. Um, at the time, I, I mean, I truly, I, I don't think I felt any remorse or I didn't feel any guilt because I was so heavily invested in what I was doing that the ability to recognise right from wrong, you know, stealing from, my mum and dad stealing from my grandmother, even, you know, like from secret hiding spots that she would entrust with me, you know, like, you know, whether it be, you know, a couple of dollars or, you know, a lot, it, it, the, the monetary value is irrelevant, but the remorse, it, it wasn't there. And, you know, it's only, you know, now, you know, maybe as I've matured, as people like to say, or as I've, you know, had some time abstinent, um, you can really reevaluate and reflect on on what on, on what I really must have, have felt, you know. Like I definitely feel it now, but 
But back then I could definitely honestly say that I didn't feel any remorse or any guilt at the time because I was too all consumed by what I wanted to do. Yeah. And what about in relationships? Could you have a relationship while you were gambling at that age? Um, I had a, a long-term partner, I guess, from when I was like 18 till I was in my early 20s. And that most of that relationship was during my heaviest gambling. And I think it was probably a result of an unhappy relationship, a unhappy personal life, the gambling, that that disintegrated. And that was sort of the first step in me, you know, when I first got busted and came clean and tried to seek some help. But then it was just like a like a smokescreen really to keep everybody happy and get them all off my back so that I could continue to, you know, slowly just go back to being the, you know, aggressive, compulsive gambler that I was. So were you able to get work easily? Yeah, work wasn't a problem. I mean, once you can sell ice to Eskimos or, you know, whatever I could do, I was, you know, getting work wasn't an issue. You know, I I had great grades at school. Um, I'm blessed with the, you know, the gift of the gab or, you know, um, being able to, you know, um, scrub up nicely. You know, I, I, I come from, a, you know, a, a well-off family without sounding, you know, arrogant or anything. Um, I was always dressed well. Um, I had, you know, um, good business sense. You know, my dad was very um, intellectual and able to guide me and, you know, how to interview well, how to, you know, write a resume and a cover letter. I didn't have a problem gaining employment. It seemed to be keeping employment was a bit of a problem back then. Um, and not having um, boundaries, like not having, you know, roles in jobs where I had a lot of freedom and flexibility, which were great for me, but were horrible for my employers. Yes, I can see. So did anybody at work, were they aware that you were gambling? Not at the time, only when everything sort of came out and I got busted for the stealing um, that I sort of just had to come clean. I think, you know, I probably was actually you know, probably the first time I can pinpoint that I had remorse or I had, I had guilt about what I'd done and shame for what I'd done because I remember sitting in the office um, coming clean and that like, that, that, that like hot sweat, like shaking, like of the legs, like that, like knowing that you were, you were done for, like you just, you knew that that gig was up, but already then your mind's going, okay, well, this one's over. I'll get out of this somehow. This will just be gone. And then how do I get money to go and gamble tonight or tomorrow? Like, where do I go from here? You know, and that's when like the mind just, it just doesn't stop. So did anybody, suggest going to get help for your gambling at any point yeah so i saw i saw i started seeing a psychologist first and attended two gamblers anonymous meetings i'm at my local gamblers anonymous place um but that was just really like a mate would drop me drop me off and then come and pick me up and we would go straight to a pub and, and gamble again you know i was there for two sessions I walked in, there was really, you know, like, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect to any members that are listening, but there was a bunch of old dudes sitting in there. You know, they're like, oh, I've been, you know, gamble free for 10 years, for five years, for two years. And I was like, these guys are nuts. Like, they still come every single week and they haven't done this for over, you know, one gentleman had, you know, like 11 years. I'm like, why do you still come? That's like, surely you're cured by now. And you just sort of brush it away and you know, did it to keep mum and dad happy. And oh, yeah, I learned something, I'm fine. The psychologist says, you know, we're working on it. But you're lying to the psychologist, you're lying to the group, you're lying to your parents because, like, I knew that, like, I wasn't really, I didn't think I had a problem. I just thought I was a bad gambler, you know, like I just had bad luck. Like I was just playing the wrong machines, or I went at the wrong time or, you know, like all these methods that I thought I would, you know, I'd, I'd fix. Yeah. So were you lying to yourself or were you in denial? Oh, I mean, it's probably, it's probably, they're probably intertwined or much of the same for the, when you're in that, you know, when you're in active addiction, you know, like whether you lie to yourself or whether you, you're just trying to, you know, pull the wool over your own eyes, whatever you're trying to do. Like it's all this, it's really all the same. I think it just, it blurs out a bit. Yeah. So going, going back to, um, to actual gambling, a lot of gamblers talk about, you know, sort of going into this sort of cocoon or zone or something that where they feel good about themselves and all their problems go away. Is that is that what gambling's like for you? Um, 
mean, probably when I was young, when I was young, like in my peak, I don't think I was really like escaping from, you know, problems. Like I, I wasn't having marital problems. I wasn't stressed about the children. I didn't have like major work issues. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have bills to pay. And I was living at home. I had everything, you know, paid for. I, you know, like I didn't have to worry about food and you know, somewhere to sleep. I had a nice car. Like, you know, I had to put fuel in my car. That was always an issue, but, you know, still somehow found a way. But I think as, as I got, as I got older, definitely like in my, when I really hit it, you know, that last sort of, you know, four years before I was um, caught, like the, the, the previous, the time just now, like definitely was definitely like an escape. And it was a, a way to, to not have to deal with what you would, even if it was only 10 minutes, like, you know, if your money was gone in that 10 minutes, it was definitely just, because you, you can't focus on anything else while you're doing it. You know, so much as a phone call comes for work, you quickly run out, you take the phone call, you run back in, you want to have a cigarette. You never seen somebody pale, pale puff a cigarette as fast as what a gambler does when they've got money in a machine. It's just, you know, I couldn't afford to buy cigarettes, but I would only smoke a third of it and then throw it away because I had to get back to the machine. You know, the same, all those things that, you know, constant with all gamblers that you speak to. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's ironic, isn't it, when you think about, you know, the, think about the value of things and, and that. So you didn't have any real problems, but you were seeking out gambling. So can you sort of understand it now why, why you were seeking it out at that early age? I mean, I understand the, the illness a lot now and I understand how it, how it operates um, and how, you know, these machines because i mean that was i can only talk about what i know how the machines are designed um to impact and affect um you know the human mind and certain receptors in your brain and how they target you know and if you happen to be you know someone who has certain character defects or character traits um that you'd be more susceptible to problem gambling than you know the average person who can go and you know, put a little bit of money in and, and be done with it and not worry about it, you know, or people that, you know, I know many people that have never gambled a dollar in, in their life. You know, just I happen to be one of the people that really enjoyed it for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Brendan, and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, So, Brendan, before the break, we were talking about poker machines and how addictive they are to certain people. So you, you also said that you came into GA, for did a few meetings, wasn't for you, and you went out and gambled for another four years. So do you want to describe how you, how you went over those next four years and what finally brought you into GA proper? Well, I actually gambled for 13 years after that oh, second okay. session. <laughs> But it was the four years prior to me getting caught where I did all of the damage. Per se, you know, like that, say that nine years, you know, say from uh, 
20 to 29, let's say, I progressed on a, on a, on a, on a steady incline, you know, a little bit, little bit here or there worse over those, that time. But then the, the four years from 29 to 33 um, was where I really did, you know, all of the major damage in, in gambling. Yeah. So do you want to tell us why that was different? I think, um, and, you know, it may seem like a bit of a cop out. Um, again, this, you know, it's very hard to explain things to people. It was around the time when we purchased a home, you know, we had cars, we purchased a home, we had cars, we had bills, and we wanted to start a family, you know, had more responsibility at work. Um, things started to just, you know, like living, you know, living tighter, but wanting to still live the same extravagant lifestyle as when you were living with your parents or the lifestyle that I was accustomed to growing up, you know, and then realizing that, hey, like, all of a sudden it's the real world now, you know, I need to save, I need to, to buy things. I have things that are more important than gallivanting around, wasting money and going out. I had responsibilities. I had a long-term partner, you know, we wanted to start a family. And then that's when I think, you know, that the, the stress and the pressure of trying to maintain appearances, you know, and keeping up with the Joneses, you know, with friends and you know, family and even family members, you know, keeping up with that same sort of, trajectory of, oh, you know, like your sister has this, you know, why aren't you doing this? You know, all those external pressures just sort of eat away at you and then you just escape, you know, and you just think that this is the easy way to do it and I'll have a big win and I'll be able to do all this stuff or I'll be able to, you know, pay this or all that. And that's when it progressed. I think that's what I can, you know, now, you know, I can look back, you know, now, but that's taken, you know, two years to, you know, fully understand how that happened. Mm. So if you need money and you gamble and you're losing money, how do you reconcile that fact that you're actually not accumulating money, you're actually getting getting more in debt? How does that work when you're gambling or doesn't it? I mean, it, I mean technically it doesn't work at all. It's the, it's the most flawed principle that, you know, known to mankind that if I gamble more money away, I'm definitely going to get all my money back. Like it just, it actually doesn't, you know, like sitting here now and, you know, analyzing it and talking about it and then, you know, and that it just, it defies logic to even believe that it was going to happen, you know, but it's those little wins or, you know, big substantial wins, little ones, whatever the win is. When that happens, it almost just like, it replenishes your energy stock, you know, like it's like if you were playing a video game and, you know, you're getting down on energy, you just, you find a little health kit and you eat that and then off you go and you just, you're back again. And that's sort of how that, it sort of works, you know, just, it just, it refuels your energy to gamble. Yeah. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? So did your partner realise that the gambling was increasing? I mean, if she did, she didn't say anything. And if she asked me about it or if she wanted to know, I mean, I, I took, I pretty much had full control of the, the family financials and you know the, the the banking and this stage I probably had you know one at least one credit card that she didn't know about one that she did I had a you know my own personal account from when I was a you know a dollar mite from the Commonwealth Bank you know from when I was a, a wee toddler I still had that account you know and then I was still using it you know like I would be able to transfer and siphon money here and there like it was you know and then working as a tradesman, being able to, you know, get paid cash a lot and saying, oh, yeah, I only got paid X amount when really you got Y. Like it was just the, the deceit was so deep and your memory, I mean, my memory, I'm not going to talk about my memory, was was so vivid and he's so strong that I wasn't going to get caught out by telling the wrong story or getting my words jumbled up from a story prior because I just didn't forget what I'd said and I'd just be able to roll with it. And I was so convinced myself that I could make anybody else believe it, you know, and someone that, you know, is, trusts me and loves me and, 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 and has full you know confidence in me is going to believe what I say, because what, well, why wouldn't you, you know, even if the signs are there, you're that good at manipulating and that good at believe and selling what you're, what you're telling that, you know, you can make anybody believe anything, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think most addicts are very good at convincing other people about stuff because otherwise you wouldn't make it that far. We don't need to convince ourselves. Like, we already truly believe it. So, I mean, if, you know, they say if you believe in something, you know, it shows. And 
think if, I mean, I believed so heavily in my gambling that, I mean, I just wouldn't have made any story become believable. You know, now it's a, it's a, it's a shame to think about, you know, the energy that I put into that and the energy I put into, you know, keeping stories going just to, you know, get a little bit more money to then lose to try and win more money back. Like it's just such a, it's such a flawed system. It is. So what happened? How, how did it all come unstuck? I think as you as you progress on, you know, like the evolution of a compulsive gambler, as you start, you know, climbing the hill or the slope, you start betting, you know, more erratically, more frequently, you know, larger sums of money in shorter amounts of time. You know, then I, I then I had a young son. So my time limit to gamble was starting to, you know, dwindle away a little bit. So when I was doing it, I was doing it heavier, more frequently, you know, things start to not add up. You know, when you start to have, you know, personal loans, credit cards, plural, um, bank accounts, plural, you know, um, money's not, you know, in the account where it needs to be, using money you shouldn't be using to pay for bills. Things just start to not add up. And I think it was just an accumulation of, things that I was doing and acting that didn't add up that probably caused her to dig a little bit um, deeper. And then I think it was just that, that that realization at dinner on the 9th of May, 2019, when I was asked, is there, is there anything you want to tell me? And it was just, it was so different to every other time we'd had that same conversation. It was like, it was calm. It was, non-invasive, you know, because every compulsive gambler will tell you that if you're confronted, you just automatically get on the defensive and start spilling lies and spilling, you know, dribble just to sort of get yourself out of it so you can just go back to gambling again, you know, like it's just yeah. that way. But this time was so was so different. I always, you know, talk about it to anybody or to, even to my wife. And so you were so calm. You were so, you were different. And that probably frightened me and made me realise at the same time that, all right, the gig's up. You know, and then in a way, I probably think now that, you know, maybe inevitably subconsciously somehow I set myself up to be caught. You know, like you get to a point where I've done so much destruction and so much damage that there is, no matter how much, you know, the sum of money that I won, you know, the sum of money I needed to win to get back to what I needed was was inconceivable in gambling. You know, yeah. like with my income and my means, it was, it just, it actually wasn't, it actually probably wasn't even physically possible, you know, like at all. Like I would have needed to win a lotto and a, you know, a fair bit of lotto to, you know, to do it, to put a dint in giving back what I'd lost. And why was your partner so confident in approaching you? What had she done? Probably, probably done her research <laughs> and found enough evidence to support her, you know, concern that it was, you know, enough of the, don't bullshit me. Tell me the truth. Like, you know, let me know. And I sort of, you know, it sort of unraveled over, you know, the course of say two hours, but still not everything came out in that initial, you know, first few days, even, you know, like there were still things that, you know, you put in the back of your memory, never to, you know, never to come out again that, you know, you need, you need to remember and you need to, address you know there's still things now sometimes that i think of but i'm like oh wow i forgot all about that and then like you think about it you talk about it at your meeting or you talk about it with my parents or my wife or whoever it is just to like just to to get it out in the open and to talk about it. like oh hey by the way when this happened that actually wasn't true what really happened was this and you know that's why i just i know it's been seven years since it happened but i just wanted to you know get that out there because that's part of my recovery you know yeah and so what did you do? What was the next step after being exposed? Anything and everything I could to try and show that I was willing to change. Because at that stage, I knew that, I mean, I was very well aware that I was a compulsive gambler and that I had a, a really severe problem that if I didn't change, that I would lose everything that I had, which wasn't much that I had really. Uh, but I would lose everything that I'd worked for, for, you know, all that time and all that an effort, um, it would be gone, you know, and then especially, the, you know, the thought of not coming home to my son every night, sort of just kickstarts, you know, started off by closing, you know, all the online accounts with all the betting agencies, the online casinos, whatever else I had, 
then you know on the on the Friday morning it was you know calling counsel relationship counselors to find someone for the two of us to go to finding a new psychologist because I mean the psychologist I've been seeing for years I basically lied to the whole time anyway so I couldn't see couldn't see her anymore because it would just it would be doing a disservice to both of us you know I, and I told her that when I spoke to her and said why well, I wouldn't be coming back found a new psychologist who specialized in um, addiction and in young men as well like I found it very you know like I I didn't want to talk to a man. I wanted to talk to a woman, but I wanted to talk to an older woman, not a young woman. Like I had all these things that I thought that I I wanted. I booked in the doctor to try and get a psychiatric evaluation, you know, because all these things go through your mind. Like, am I, is there something clinically wrong with me? You know, is there something chemically wrong? You know, close down all the old bank accounts, you know, the, the credit cards, you know, do a debt table. Like, I mean, that first week was, was, a, was a, I mean, it's a real blur but it remains so vividly etched in my in my brain that I don't think I could forget it even if I was, you know, shock treated. And when we referred back to GA? Oh, straight away. I mean, I looked straight away for when the meeting was going to be on. Um, it was a Thursday night when everything came out. Friday was was pretty bad. We had our best friends were coming to visit from interstate and I'd picked um, her up from the airport on the Friday evening and was on the phone to um, Gambler's Help on the way in. I um, mean, the lady I was talking to had told me, you know, to you know go back to a meeting. Um, where do I live? I told her, and she said that where my local meeting was was on Tuesday. Um, my best mate then had driven, I don't even know how many hours he'd driven for, a long time to get to us, over over like 12 hours, um, and then arrived at 7.05, and at 7.10 we left and went straight to a meeting. He came and sat with me for an hour and a half in, in, a, in a meeting. And from that moment when I walked in, there was still one gentleman there who was there when I went 13 years earlier, you know. And this time instead of saying, why are you still here? I sort of said, I know why you're here. You know, it was that like instant realisation of like there's a reason why you're still here and I need to, you know, latch on to you and, and to the people in here and do whatever it takes to, to turn it around. Yeah. So what was it like? to go back after that long, were you sort of embarrassed or? No, no I, w- I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't ashamed. I mean, everybody in the room is, is there for the same reason as what I was. You know, there's no judgment. There's no criticism. You know, that people are just happy that, you know, you've walked in the door and, you, and you've sat down, you know, you've showed up, you know, you've done a lot more than what, you know, a lot of people will ever do. Um, you know, it takes courage to walk through the door. But, yeah, I guess it's just, it's, it's lucky that it's there. You know, the opportunity is there. Yeah. So were the younger people there this time? Younger, yes, and females too, um, you know, which is which was, you know, it wasn't so, um, you know, male-dominated. That's what I remember from when I was, you know, 19. Not that I paid much attention really, you know. It was more just to keep the family happy and get everyone off my back, whereas this time it was, you know, um, a more diverse range of, of ages, genders, nationalities, you know, everything and, you know, and, and a larger group too, you know, a larger, you know, 17 or, you know, 15 to 17 people every week, you know, and rotating too, you know, different people. It was almost medicinal and therapeutic at the same time. You know, people say, you know, they go there to get their fix, you know, their medicine to, to not gamble again. And I mean, I see the merit in saying that and I see how people feel that way. You know, I, I looked at it as, you know, it was a means to to keep my family. You know, to keep my family together, to keep my set, to keep my sanity, to keep my promise to myself and to my wife that I would change. You know, and whatever steps I needed to do, that helped, and that was one of the biggest. Yeah. So, what was the first thing you did when you got into GA? Just openly shared what I what I'd done and how I was caught. You know, spoke first. Spoke honestly. I've got you know things off my chest I'd never said before to anybody else before, you know, and got that that reassurance that, you know, like yes, I was on day one. Oh no, I was on like day four by then. I think it was day four. You know, there was hope. You know, there's people there with a hundred days, with a thousand days, with ten thousand days. You know, like there was different levels there to give you that. It really is hope. Like it really is the right word. There's no other word for it. That you know things can improve. You know, and the and the older gentlemen that are there are the ones that you really look up to because 
that's a testament to the longevity that it can be achieved. You know, it's not just a short-term fix and I'm going to, you know, in five years I'm going to go back or, you know, that it can be done. You know, you can abstain for, you know, the rest of your life. Yeah, and, and I guess the important thing is you can abstain but not miss it. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I categorise, I mean, I, I always believe that there's different levels of addiction. You know, there's people at the, the peak of addiction and there's people that have, you know, a, a smaller addiction but still have an addiction. And from the moment I was caught, you know, I vowed to myself that I would never do it again. And I truly, you know, believe that deep down. And I actually, I, I, I can't, I can honestly say that I haven't, you know, been tempted to go and gamble. Yeah, sure, I dream about gambling every now and then or nightmare, I call it sort of dream anymore. It's more of a nightmare, you know, because even winning, when you dream about winning and you have this, like, you still lose everything in the dream. So it's definitely a nightmare. Um, I've, you know, I, I haven't been to a, um, a venue that has a poking machine in, you know, over two years, not because I'm not allowed to, but just because I don't want to strain any of my family members by thinking, you know, what's going on if, you know, if something was to happen. But yeah, like I don't think that there's a there's an urge in me to gamble anymore. But I mean, I've got you know psychologist. I mean, I've been to psychiatrist. I have a couples counselor. I have GA. I have a sponsor. I have you know four or five other members I talk to weekly. You know, I have a huge network of scaffolding around me to support me to ensure that I don't head down that path. You know. Yeah, that's good. Okay, we might take another short break. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Brendan and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, so, Brendan, we're, we're talking about, you know, getting into GI and taking it seriously. We last talked in September 2019. So I guess it was about six months before COVID struck. So you would have had eight or so months by the time COVID struck. So what was the impact of COVID on your face-to-face meeting? Well, my face-to-face pretty much stopped pretty quickly with all the shutdowns and lockdowns that we endured and still enduring. But, you know, Zoom gave the ability to, to still have meetings, but once that novelty wore off early on, you know, being in your home environment and being at home was great. You know, I can go to meetings at home, you know, I can relax. But it's actually harder, I find, to to do a meeting at home than what it is to actually go out and do a physical meeting. You know, you miss that face-to-face interaction and that human contact and connection. And it became hard to to get motivated to do to do a weekly meeting, you know, you had nothing to do but be at home. Really, I mean, I was I mean, I was lucky; I was able to work the whole time, but it was still difficult to to sit in bed and and, and do a meeting. You know, it was, and it, you know, people were using it as a as a means to just 
to chat and catch up and and talk about you know how you know how great it is that we've got people from overseas you know because of COVID and talk about COVID and about their feelings and and that and which is which is fine which is great but it became less about recovery and the ability to share true emotion because it's not the same on a computer screen as well as it is in a room. No, and a lot of people would have their video off as well, um, which made it difficult to, I guess, connect with people like you can in a face-to-face meeting. Yep, definitely, definitely. So what effect did it have on you? So you were you were basically feeling, I guess, a bit isolated. So did you seek out other meetings or did you go to the continue with the same meeting? Um, I sort of, I tried to mix it up a little bit, um, different nights, maybe, you know, a weekend one here and there. And then, uh, you know, other states started to pop up with, so like a, an actual, uh, like a meeting, like an individual meeting would run their own, Zoom meeting rather than a generic um, Gambles Anonymous, you know, meeting. So it was sort of the same members that would attend the normal meetings. Um, and I started doing meetings in different states, you know, meeting new people, connecting with new people, you know, um, forming um, friendships with people, I mean, different states and communicating like for a different perspective, different point of view, different stories, hearing different stories and different triggers for people and how, you know, it, like how it affected them. And then that sort of reinvigorated, you know, the GA. But I still, you know, definitely wasn't doing weekly meetings like I was doing, you know, prior to, you know, I missed my one-year anniversary. Um, you know, I mean, I know it's strange, my wife, and many people think it's strange that we call it an anniversary, that we celebrate, you know, one of the darkest days and a dark period. But to me and to the people in the fellowship, you know, those anniversaries, whatever they are, days, years, months, like they're, they're significant milestones in rebuilding confidence and trust in ourselves you know not having that you know like I was bummed about that you know one year and then when my two year came around this year and you know thankfully at that stage we were still allowed you know out um, I was able to to celebrate it but it still didn't have that same effect as that one year like you know like there's certain milestones in people's lives where it's like a first birthday gets celebrated and the second birthday with your child you're like oh yeah it's the second birthday like it's all good we did the first one really well you know yeah. So what about newcomers and I guess the, the impact, you know, newcomers have a added bit of stimulation to a group. So did you get the same sort of number of newcomers coming into the Zoom meetings? It was hard because you didn't really know because they were like a, you know, like say it was a statewide or a Melbourne wide meeting. You didn't really know unless somebody openly said, oh, I'm a new member or they may have only been in the program for a week or a couple of days or, couple of weeks but you may never have seen them in that meeting so you didn't actually know that they were new until you sort of heard them so there wasn't that like that you know that meet and greet at the start when you know you introduce yourself to try and make someone feel welcome um, you didn't get that same sort of it, it's very you know I'm very grateful that we had zooms but it definitely didn't have the same impact and the same level of you know for me personally that the face-to-face meetings um, did and do you know, and then obviously you lose. There's a lot of members that you would see weekly at face-to-face meetings that, you know, never did Zoom or didn't feel comfortable or, you know, were isolated, um, you know, losing members, unfortunately busting or, you know, having a, lap, a relapse. You know, all these things were sort of just much different to deal with and much harder to cope with, you know, in the situation that we were in. Yeah, so given that you'd been in GA for nearly a year before you moved to Zoom meetings, how did your friendships, your GA friendships last? Um, the ones that, like, so the, the main, you know, the core group of people that I used for support and guidance um, didn't change because all those people had, you know, ex- extensive time up already, you know, um, granted my... Um, my actual sponsor um, has actually busted twice in the last 12 months um, after you know, having substantial time up and not being able to, you know, be there in a, in a physical presence. Like it has an, it has an impact on you, you know, but the relationship with certain members that I turn to um, remain strong. It's definitely, it definitely slows down and the frequency of, you know, talking and, and catching up and that does slow down. You know, even though we were 
not busy doing activities, life was still really, really busy, you know, and, and that being isolated and being alone most of the time, it has an impact on wanting to communicate and get out there and talk to people, you know, and I'm a very extravagant, extroverted, outgoing person, you know, and even for me to, you know, to, to, to bring that in, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, you know, like lethargic and lazy and I, I couldn't be bothered. Did the meeting eventually open up before we closed down again? Yes, the meeting started opening back up again, like around Victoria, you know, in mid to late February, slowly, you know, a couple here and there, it was very difficult for the um, the people in charge um, to, to, you know, to work with these, you know, community halls, town halls, churches. Um, the rules were constantly changing. Um, who was going to be responsible for cleaning, for checking in, for sanitizing, who was going to be responsible, you know, like if someone was sick, you had to send them home and that made people uncomfortable. Like were people actually going to come back to meetings? Were they not? Like our group that we started, you know, we had like one or two people turning up for for a few weeks, like or none sometimes, you know, um, other meetings were slowly starting again and picking up and, and, you know, not having the same level of numbers that we've seen, you know, pre-COVID. There wasn't many new people turning up, you know, which I thought, you know, reading the stats and knowing the stats about, you know, online gambling and that during COVID, you know, I truly believed that it would almost be people banging at the doors trying to, you know, get in, you know, we'd be turning people away because of limits and it just was the opposite. Yeah. V-shaped recovery. Yeah. It's just, it was just, you know, it sort of caught me off guard too, you know, because I, I opened a meeting in our local area because there wasn't one, you know, closer to where I live and, you know, we were having good momentum, you know, pre-COVID and then sort of, you know, no one. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, it just didn't make any sense. It was, it was really disheartening and really, you know, concerning. Did it affect your recovery? I think it, it probably affected the progress of my recovery. You know, I was ready to do the steps, you know, to do the 12 steps, you know, individually in meetings. I was, you know, starting to get really involved heavily in the fellowship and wanting to, you know, I've spoken to you a few times now. I've spoken to other, you know, um, shows, um, radio, podcasts, things like that, you know, trying to help, you know, get the message out there and help people. And it just sort of, it sort of, it stalled the progression and the progress and that I was on, I feel. I don't think it, it, it hampered it. It just slowed it down. And I guess with the, with the latest one, it's only been a couple of weeks in real terms. Obviously, you've had to shut down the, the face-to-face meeting. But has, has everybody sort of flipped over to Zoom straight away? I don't know because I haven't actually, honestly, I haven't done one. Yeah. I've got, you know, I've got a newborn at the moment and, uh, well, what is, he, is he terrible threes? I think they call it now. It's not definitely not terrible twos. Give me twos over threes any day. But, you know, in life, just life circumstances at the moment just make it a little bit more um, difficult. Um, and I'm hoping it was any notes short and sharp. We can go back to meetings. Um, because I mean, I was doing as soon as meetings were open in my area. I was, we, I was at meetings every week. Like it was just, like you know, you pick up where you left off. Like you just had a bit of a hiatus. There wasn't as many people there, but it was still good to go back to face to face because there was just something about driving on your own to a meeting, driving home, being able to reflect about the actual meeting. You know, that differs from you know sitting on your couch or in your bed on a laptop talking to a screen. Yeah, like now. <laughs> like now. That's okay. I'm used to it now. Yeah. yeah. What about service? Service is difficult with an electronic meeting, but are you involved in GA service? Yeah, so um, like running, like actually like hosting, meet, chairing meetings and et cetera. Yeah, so yeah. there was always opportunities to chair a meeting if you wanted to chair. You know, generally there was a lot of you know, big personalities that, you know, wanted to to, to be the top dog or to, to share. You know, sometimes it was nice to just, put the headphones on, have no video on, you know, go about your business, doing your jobs or do do work and just and just listen, you know, just actually just, you know, an hour and a half of just hearing the stories. You know, you've got a lot more story time and that in the Zoom meetings, you know, less reading from the book and less of the 20 questions and, you know, all, all, the, all those sort of things. So you had more time to, to listen and people were better with their time because there was so many more people on the meetings that, Nobody wanted to, you know, be that bloke or woman that spoke for 10 minutes or 15 minutes when, and then five people would miss out, you know? So it was a lot more condensed. Yeah. So where do you see, you know, things moving in the, in the future for you as far as GA goes? 
I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, slowly over time, you know, the numbers will um, increase again, you know, back to levels pre-COVID, even expand further with knowledge and, and media and ability to organically grow the, the fellowship, you know, sticking to all the principles and the traditions. Um, you know, I think personally, I definitely think and, and hope that Jigae can come into the 21st century now, you know, um, move into the times a little bit more because I think there's a, you know, there's a really big target audience of people that just don't see the program for what it is simply because of the language used in the program. Yeah. You know, I think I was probably one of those people, you know, like I don't know what, I still don't know what Penny Ante is and World Series Billiards or whatever it is. I don't know what that is. Like I've never seen that in my life. Yet it's talked about in the book. You know, I think there's there's room for, you know, maybe a little bit of a generational change in the language. And, you know, I'd love to be a, p- a part of that. I like to keep sharing my story with anybody who'll listen because I think that the more people that I tell, the better I feel and the more people I can tell. If I can help someone and continue to help someone, then, you know, that's all that I'm after. Okay. If anybody would like to find out more about Gambles Anonymous, you can find them in Victoria on 03. 03- Nine six nine six six one zero eight, or you can go online at gaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. You actually get to talk to me because I man the phones on Fridays. Cool. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Brendan for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous helped him. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. No worries. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll have our annual 3CR Radiothon show. That should be live if Melbourne's current COVID lockdown ends in time. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help support community-powered podcasts for another year.